morning to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And begin reading in verse 32. Read down through the end of the chapter here. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through the end of the chapter. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near to Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And this is God's word, this narrative of Peter's gospel ministry here to Lydda and Joppa specifically, but as we look at verse 32, Peter is traveling through, it says all, and then supplied is those regions. If we look at the context, the verse right before it says Judea and Galilee and Samaria. So you have Peter who is outside of Jerusalem. He's left Jerusalem. He is among God's people in various places, and these are just two incidents in Peter's life and ministry that Luke draws attention to. There's more coming in chapters 10, 11, and 12 as regards Peter. But you could call this his early ministry. As I was thinking about this passage, I thought this is Peter's early ministry. And in one sense it is, if we look at the career, the whole career of Peter. Peter's ministry, though, began long before because Jesus, remember, called him to be his disciple and then sent him out as one of the apostles with God's power to heal, to cleanse lepers and so forth. He gave him 
uh, authority earlier on to do the very same kinds of things he's doing in the book of Acts. And so you could say Peter's ministry, his earliest ministry was with the Lord himself. And then as time progresses, of course, Christ uh, comes to his passion, dies on the cross, rises again, ascends into heaven. Then Peter is leading the other apostles by virtue of, I believe, Christ's direction. He's oftentimes the first to speak. He was very many times the one who's preaching in the context where all the apostles are. And to this point in the book of Acts, you could say certainly he's been uh, preaching and teaching. His early ministry, though, was in Jerusalem. Now, this is outside of Jerusalem. And as we see the, the book of Acts unfold, this is in Jesus' direction to the disciples to make disciples of all the nations. This is moving outward. It's moving outward even as Jesus specified in Acts chapter 1, when he says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And he was talking to his own disciples. He was talking to the apostles, the other disciples as well. And so here is Peter, I think you could say, based on this passage, obeying the Lord Jesus, uh, taking the gospel to places where it had not gone or had not come. I think we see based on this uh, brief section here, that the gospel came to these cities in a way that it had not before. There wasn't belief here. There wasn't faith here, at least not to the extent that there is following these miracles. And so we're looking at the early ministry of Peter beyond Jerusalem. Peter is traveling, and as he travels, he comes, look at verse 32, he comes down, I believe again, whenever wherever you see that in the book of Acts, it's a reference to Jerusalem being up, because in terms of geography, this would be west uh, of Jerusalem, so he's coming down from Jerusalem also to the, and then it says, the saints who lived at Lydda. It's not that there were no believers here. There were believers here. But he doesn't use the word believers. He uses a different word. A word that Ananias had used uh, earlier on in the chapter. If you look at verse 13, Ananias, as he's speaking to the Lord about Saul, he says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your, and what's the word, saints. And then in verse 32, Peter came down to the saints. And you don't find this term very often in the book of Acts. It's not one of Luke's favorite terms for disciples. And I say that, I don't I don't know the mind of Luke, but he just didn't use it as much as the other ones. It is a favorite of the Apostle Paul, who when he writes his letters is oftentimes referring to the saints, the holy ones. And that's what saint means. It's someone who is a holy one. It refers to what God has called his people to be holy. These ones who are set apart, they are followers of Christ. They are ones who actually had come to faith in Christ. So when he says he came down to the saints, 
these holy ones, these are those who came to faith in Christ. They're called to be holy. We don't hold to a definition of saint that a person becomes a saint at a certain point after certain miracles are done in their name or whatever. That's a bunch of foolishness. The Bible calls every person who is a believer a saint, a holy one. And we are called to be saints. We're called to holiness. God gives this term to his people to describe what they are certainly in his sight, what they will be in their experience eventually. If I called you a holy one, and you just looked over your life up to this point, could you describe yourself that way? Would you want to describe yourself that way? You might say, well, I don't feel very holy. Well, that's what God has called you to be. And if you're in Christ, you are one of his holy ones. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that we are called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Why am I taking so much time? Partly because it's not used very frequently in the book of Acts, but it is what defines and identifies these believers. It's who they are. And by extension, by faith, we look at the other epistles. This is applied to every Christian. That means you and me. It's a good thing to think that way. Because that's what God has called me to, to be set apart, to be different from the world, to not be like the world. His eye is on us. His spirit is in us. His spirit is holy. He's working to that end in our lives to sanctify, to cleanse, to make us more and more like Christ. And so here's a group of people you could say just like us. They're saints. They're holy ones. They lived near the coast. Peter is traveling through that region that Philip may have gone through. In fact, this congregation may be a result of Philip's ministry. Remember, Philip went up the coast preaching the gospel. Philip preached Jesus Christ where he went to Samaria. He went to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then as we read the story back, when it talks about what he was doing, he went up the coast preaching to those cities. And so it's possible that these saints, this group of people, this church, uh, had met Philip. It doesn't say that, but here it's in this context where Peter finds, and that's what it says in verse 33, he finds a man named Aeneas. That name means praise. This man has a Greek name. Uh, he had been bedridden for eight years, so there's a point in his life where something happened, and he was paralyzed and could not get out of bed. That's his whole life circumstance for eight long years. And Peter finds him there. Whether or not he's part of the church is not evident. Uh, the reason I say that, some argue that he was, that's why Peter finds him. Others would say, well, he just happened to be there and everyone knew him. Whether he is a part of the church or not, I do think we, do, we, we see in verse 34 and 35 something amazing the Lord did through his life. And I do believe that if he's not 
coming to faith, or excuse me, if he's not already a believer, he's coming to faith here. Because in verse 34, and we'll get into this, but I believe you see evidence of his faith there. What's his circumstance? Eight years bedridden. That's a long time. Not able to walk, having to depend on other people for care. Never able to get out, go other places unless someone carried him. And so it seems that either he's brought to Peter, Peter comes to him. And when Peter interacts or begins to interact with Aeneas, verse 34, he makes a declaration to him, and then he gives him a command. The declaration has to do with what Jesus Christ is doing. Peter here, servant of Christ, an apostle of Christ here in Lydda, has an opportunity to preach the gospel, certainly, but here he interacts with this man who's been bedridden for eight years, and he announces to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Now, that's a short statement, but it's filled with implications. And even to respond to such a statement is filled with implications. What is the implication if Jesus Christ is healing you, present tense? Well, Jesus Christ must be alive and well and have the capacity and power to heal. In fact, it implies that he has risen from the dead, that he truly is what he said he was, which is the Messiah. So I say it's packed with implications. Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, is alive, and he is healing. It is his purpose to heal this man, Aeneas, and he gives Aeneas a command. Now, just remember the previous verse, as you see this command, get up and make your bed. Now, we're probably all familiar with such a statement if our parents came into our room and told us the same thing, but totally different set of circumstances. In this circumstance, he doesn't have the capacity to do it. Something happened, there was some circumstance in his life that brought him to this place, and for eight long years... That would be going back to what, 2016? This man hasn't walked. He hasn't gotten out of bed other than to be, be cared for by others. And the command from Peter is get up and make your bed. Another translation has get up and roll up your mat. Get up and make your own bed. And I don't think it's the same exact thing when mom tells us or dad tells us, get up and make your bed. No, this is a circumstance in which he's actually going to get up and he's going to probably roll up his mat if that's what he was laying on and be able to take it and put it away and walk and leap and run. And you would say that would be cruel to say that unless what he is offering is the power of God to actually heal him, which that's what Peter is offering. <laughs> So I say in verse 34, we do see this man's faith. How do we see it? Well, it's not so much in the declaration of Christ's purpose, 
or the command to get up. It's in what he does in response to the command. Verse 34, end of the verse, immediately he got up. The very command of Peter demands faith. It also places Aeneas's confidence not on Peter, but on Christ himself. So Peter is pointing to Christ who is alive, who has a will and a power to heal Aeneas. And for Aeneas to respond to Peter's statement would be to respond in faith. And that's exactly what he does. This faith that Peter commands in the name of Christ, Aeneas exercises. Now, some would say you don't really see faith here on the part of Aeneas. In fact, one church writer, Chrysostom, said, why did he not wait for the man's faith and ask if he wished to be healed? And he points to the events that follow as the reason that Peter does what he does. But I, I believe what Peter, when he says, get up and make your bed, he and Jesus Christ heals you, he is putting out there the object of faith and the command to respond to Jesus in terms of faith. And where do you see the faith of Aeneas? It's the faith to believe that Jesus lives, that Jesus purposes to heal him, and that this command that Peter is giving is offered in Jesus' name. So in other words, for him to obey this command is an exhibition of his faith. What is faith? We looked at last week in Hebrews chapter 11, faith takes hold of what is yet to be. His healing hasn't happened yet, but he's taking hold of what Peter is saying, but also faith takes hold of what, what, what one cannot see. Jesus isn't present. Aeneas is not a witness of the resurrection, but by faith he's trusting that Jesus Christ is able to heal, directing him to stand up in light of his power to heal. And yes, you see the faith of Aeneas as immediately he gets up. We don't see the details like we saw back in Acts chapter 3, where the man in 4, where the man is running and leaping, jumping everywhere in the temple. But we do see that the community saw him. Look at verse 35. It says, And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Lydda, of course, is the city where Aeneas is. Again, not far from the coast. And then Sharon is the plain that is surrounding Lydda, north and south of Lydda, as I understand. Sharon is mentioned in the Old Testament as a plain where David's animals grazed when he was the king and had shepherds and those who took care of his flocks and herds. First Chronicles 27, 29 says that he had a shepherd or someone who was caring for flocks in the area of Sharon. It was apparently a very... Uh, a place filled with vegetation. Isaiah prophesied at one point, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Araba will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with, a re with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So 
what Isaiah is saying is that one day the wilderness is going to be like Carmel and Sharon. There's going to be such lush vegetation. So yes, flocks could graze there. Uh, when the bride in the Song of Solomon said, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, she was talking about this place. But she wasn't saying anything special about her. She's just saying, I'm just a common flower within this abundance of flowers. She's being modest about herself. The gospel comes to Lydda, and as it blooms, you could say, through the faith of Aeneas in this circumstance, and he is healed, then it's spread through all of these different people who see him, who come to realize that Aeneas, this man was bedridden for eight years, is now walking, and they believe in the power of God to heal, because here is evidence of it. Here's a demonstration of it. And notice the wording. It says, they turned to the Lord, which means they were, before they turned to the Lord, they were turned to other things. They had to do an about face from what they were doing. And as they're confronted with the proof and the truth of Jesus Christ, evidenced by his power, his resurrection power to heal this man, to change him, to give him, again, you might say a new life, a sort of new life, because now he can walk again. This is proof, and they can't dispute it, and they put their trust in Christ. And God used this one incident to bring faith to a whole area as a result of his power. First Thessalonians chapter 1 says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is a conversion like the conversion of the Thessalonians. We have idolaters, but now through the power of the risen Christ to heal this man, to show him on display, there are others who seeing this mighty act of God come to faith as well. And we don't have this kind of a miracle that takes place, but this is a record, it's a true record of what happened. Jesus is still alive. He is still powerful. He is still Lord. He is still able. And of course, he's still saving people. And there's another exhibition of that here in verse 36 down to verse 43, and that's the raising of Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead. So we have the conversion of the people there at Lydda and Sharon. And this is a very similar story because there's someone who is sick but actually dies. It's not just incapacitated but dies. But by the end of this scene, down in verse 42, there's also another, you'd say, mass conversion. Many people come to Christ. Many people believe in God. But we have more detail here about what takes place with Tabitha, verse 36. She's also called Dorcas. That would be her name in Greek. Joppa, if we're trying to locate that again, we're talking about the coast. This is the place where Jonah ran to find a ship. So it's that area, 
along the coast, again, a place where Philip may have come, preached the gospel. And Tabitha is, verse 36, described as a disciple, or given a little bit of information about her name. But there is an interesting word there in verse 36 when it says that she is a disciple. Now, this is a common word that Luke uses, but he doesn't often use this form of the word. This is a feminine form. Why, do he, why does he use the, the feminine form? Well, being a disciple is not just something for men, it's for women too. Those who obtain a knowledge of Jesus Christ and follow his teaching are disciples, whether men or women. This is a feminine term, and so what this tells us from the outset is that Tabitha or Dorcas was not just what the rest of the verse describes, but she was attentive to the teaching about Christ. She believed the truth about Christ. She was being taught the commands of Christ, of course, as Christ gave direction in his great commission. Calvin said on this text that lest one should think that, quote, this name was proper to men only, he attributes the same title to a woman. This title teaches us that Christianity cannot be without doctrine, and that that form of learning is prescribed that the same Christ may be master to all. This is the highest praise. This is the beginning of a holy life. This is the root of all virtues to have learned of the Son of God the way to live and the true life. So this is a follower of Christ. This is a believer in Christ. This is someone who's following the truth and receiving the teaching and that teaching was bearing fruit in her life. You can see as the verse continues. Before we look at that, I just want to make a comment about her name here. Some attention is drawn to the meaning of her name. Uh, both the Greek and the Hebrew uh, refer to um, something, uh, an animal, a gazelle, chrysostom, preacher who taught through the book of Acts said that this name communicates something about her, sort of like what names communicate about a person, that she was active and wakeful as an antelope, he says. I'm not sure that that's Luke's purpose. I do believe you have the man named Aeneas back in verse 33, and now the Greek name of this woman is Dorcas, tells us to a certain extent that the area in which Peter is has Greek influence. I think even as we see what they do when she dies, there's evidence of Greek influence. She's 